doing a series right now called Priesthood. And what we're attempting to do here is to explore this doctrine that the church has called the priesthood of all believers. Now, the interesting thing is that phrase, priesthood of all believers, does not occur in the Bible. And this sometimes causes people some consternation. And that's okay because the concept is there. In fact, we get the concept from uh, a letter that a man named Peter wrote, first of two letters. Um, and uh, he uh, wrote in, in the second chapter, uh, calling Christians, people who follow Jesus, a, a, a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood. And so what we did is we, we, we spent some time saying, okay, if that's what we are as Christians, what does it mean to be a priest? What, what does that actually mean? Because it sounds really cool. But what does it actually mean day to day? And uh, we explored that a little bit last week. And uh, if you haven't heard the message, uh, it's on the podcast, I think, on, on either the church app or the website. And I invite you to listen to it. But we, we, we took a look at this, this notion of priesthood, not just from a New Testament standpoint, but also an Old Testament standpoint. And we, we drew a couple conclusions. But ultimately speaking, a priest is somebody who mediates the grace and mercy of God. They're a conduit of grace and mercy, or maybe we could say they distribute grace and mercy. That's probably an easier way of saying it. And ultimately, that if we're a priesthood, the thing that we're supposed to be doing is distributing grace and, and mercy to the people around us. Why? Because we received it from somebody, right? So we're just going to pass that along. We're going to pass along this idea of grace and mercy. Now, here's the thing, though. What's, what's interesting to me is that grace and mercy is going to look very different from person to person. Why? Well, because each one of us has different needs. Each one of us has a different set of experiences, and we will receive grace and mercy differently just by the way we're wired, right? So each person is unique, and therefore, we experience grace and mercy uniquely as individuals. Does that make sense? Nod your head so I know that you're tracking with me. Okay, good. Good. You're awake. Have you had coffee yet? Coffee is a good thing. Um, so... What we want to, to try to do today is to look at those differences that we all have as we receive some grace and mercy. And uh, I, I, I say this uh, quite a bit because really my goal here is for Thrive Church to be a thoughtful church. I want to be thinking about these things and saying, okay, we talk about these words, we talk about these ideas, but what do they actually mean and how does it work out in practice? Because what we want to do is we want to take the word of God, we want to absorb it and actually live it out. Ooh, there's a novel concept, right? Because otherwise what happens is we become like sponges and we get so soaked in you know, church kinds of stuff that we've got no room for anything else. So we actually want to live it out, squeeze it out so that we're, we have room for more. And we're going to get some um, help today um, dealing with the reality of these differences, and I, frankly, I want to avoid some formulas too, um, but we're going to get some out today from another New Testament writer named Paul. And uh, Paul was a great missionary. He set up a bunch of different churches around the Mediterranean world, and then he wrote letters to them, encouraging them, sometimes correcting them. Uh, and we have a number of those letters, one of which is a letter to a group of Christians who gathered in a major city called Ephesus. 
and the, uh, the book is Ephesians. So if you have a Bible, or if you have a Bible app, you might want to turn to Ephesians chapter 4. That's where we're going to spend our time today. We're going to camp out there. Um, very often, uh, when I'm trying to prep a message, there's an idea that I might want to explore. Um, sometimes it's I want to explore a, a particular passage in the scripture. Uh, so if you are a hardcore Bible scholar, today is your day. Because we're going to dig and we're going to dig deep. So I hope you have your steel-toed boots on because uh, we're going we're gonna to dig around in this passage of Ephesians chapter 4 um, uh, during the day today. So a little bit about Ephesus. It is a major Roman city. It is a port city. It's very important on certain trade routes. And there is a, uh, a, actually a very influential church that rose out of the city of Ephesus. And Paul is writing this letter more or less of encouragement to the Ephesians. And uh, in that um, uh, book, uh, or in that letter, chapter 4, he, he starts talking about how we're supposed to live and how we're supposed to act. And this is going to relate to priesthood here momentarily. So I'm going to start reading at uh, verse 1. And I'm going to try to make some comments as we go along, okay? So Ephesians chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Verse 2, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. So he, he just starts out with this little bit of advice. Why? Next verse, verse 3. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So this notion of unity becomes very important later on in this, uh, in this uh, passage in verse 13. We're going to get to that in a second. But this idea of unity is not unique to Paul. In fact, Jesus, um, just before he was uh, taken and, and tried and crucified, and he spent some time with his disciples and in the, the Gospel of John, in the 17th chapter, he actually prays for not only his disciples right there, but the disciples who will come after them, which, by the way, includes you and me, okay? And one of the things he says is, God, I pray that they would be one, that there would be some unity. Now, let me just hit the pause button right here, because um, in today's world, we could use a little unity, couldn't we? You've been following the events on the national scene and some of the things that have happened in Virginia this week. I, I just, I don't, I don't understand that. And church, we have an opportunity to show a different way of being human, to be unified in this bond of peace and love. And the world is desperate for it. And guess what? You are plan A. There is no plan B. <laughs> so we have this opportunity day in and day out to actually be these me this mediator of grace and mercy to the people around us. And we need more and more of that. 
And by the way, things don't happen on a national level that don't happen on a local level. So we get to start right here. And uh, there's my two cents worth about national events. You can take it or leave it, but I suggest you take it. <laughs> so let me keep moving on here. Um, verse 7 comes along. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. So here uh, Paul is talking about this idea of unity. He's hearkening back to Jesus, praying that we would be one. And then in verse 7, he says, but now wait a second. To each person, to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. So even though there's unity, guess what? There's also diversity. Have you noticed the people around you are a little different than you? One of the things that I've noticed is that people um, will often marry their polar opposite. I don't know why that is, but it just kind of works that way. Now think about you and your spouse. If there's, when, when my wife and I meet people, um, one of the things we talk about sometimes, okay, which one of the couple is the extrovert and which one is the introvert? Some people it's real obvious. <laughs> Other people it's not. You can tell in my relationship with my wife which one is extroverted and which one is introverted. Okay, I'm just gonna, you know, it's not hard to tell. And you probably know people like that too. But the fact of the matter is, is that there is diversity among people and God made it that way. Let me tell you a great little story. I had a professor in seminary who was from, um, uh, I can't remember the country, but he was from Africa. And he was just this very regal looking, you know, African. <clears throat> and uh, he said that he was probably seven or eight years old before he saw a white person. And he, he, he didn't understand. And so his, uh, I think it was his grandmother took him outside and picked up some dirt that was in the garden that was rich and dark. And she says, there's this kind of dirt. And then she went over and picked up some light colored sand and this kind of dirt and reminded him that God formed Adam out of the dust of the earth. And why would there not be more colors to people if there weren't if there, there's colors on the ground. Isn't that interesting? It's a beautiful phrase. So there's diversity here. So yes, we want unity, but there's also a place for diversity as Christ apportioned it. Does that make sense? Okay, so then uh, Paul launches into this little psalm. He's actually quoting, I think it's Psalm uh, 68 is, is typically the one that everyone references. Uh, here, um, this is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. And what, what I think Paul is trying to explain to us is he, he gravitates towards this, this victory psalm that David is singing. And he, he takes it and he says, look, we have victory in Jesus Christ and therefore we have confidence that he's actually giving gifts. Does that make sense? Because Paul will do this, he'll just, he'll just break into song. It's like, in my mind, okay, this is David World, I'm sorry, but David World is that Paul is like, it's a musical, and he just starts breaking out into song every now and then. And that's, like I said, that's, that's my interpretation of it. You can do whatever you want with it. But periodically in his letters, he will break out into song. He'll pick out these, these psalms, these pieces of poetry, and he appropriates them for, for whatever he's um, uh, trying, to, trying to communicate to us. And so he, he talks about this idea of, you know, Christ has apportioned it. He has had victory, and therefore we have confidence that he has given these gifts. All right, uh, let's move on now to verse 
11. <clears throat> you kind of have to read verse 7 and 11 at the same time. Here it is. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, sometimes called shepherds, and teachers. Now, how many of you have seen this verse before? This is called the five-fold ministry um, uh, structure, <clears throat> five-fold ministry structure. So we've got these five different areas that Christ himself gave to us. So we are a priesthood, and we have different aspects. And I think it's, it's, a, it's a, uh, appropriate for us to take and, and try to understand some of these aspects a little bit more. We're going to take a few minutes and, and talk about these so that we get an idea of what's going on here. So first of all, you have uh, what he terms as an apostle, and what an apostle does is he extends the gospel. That means he brings the gospel to new areas and tries to establish it, okay? So this is the, the person who imagines, they lead, they recruit other leaders in order to extend the gospel. Prophets call, they call people back to God. If we read about the Old Testament prophets, the thing that they do over and over again is, this is God, you have a relationship, don't break the relationship with God. Constantly calling people back to God, okay? Third, we have evangelists. These are the folks who tell. They tell others about the good news. Evangelist comes from the uh, Greek word euangelion. And euangelion um, was the, the term that was applied to uh, official decrees by Caesar. And, and it's translated as good news. So what would happen is Caesar would defeat the hordes, you know, the, 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 the barbarian hordes. This is euangelion. This is good news. And so the Christians came along and they appropriated it. And they said, okay, Caesar's got some good ideas, but let me tell you about Jesus. And so we get this idea of evangelist as a person who tells others good news. Does that make sense? It's kind of a fun way to think about it. Um, because I think sometimes evangelists in today's modern language kind of get a bad rap. Can we be honest about that? Especially if you add the prefix tella. <laughs> Just saying. Shepherds uh, are the next one. Shepherds care for other people. They want to make sure that people's well-being are taken care of. One of the things that I've noticed is that in any small group, you've got to have a shepherd. Because shepherds are just, hey, you doing okay? You sure you're doing okay? Is there anything I can do for you? They want to get you the, you know, an extra helping on your plate if you're eating dinner or want to make sure that, you know, things are going on at home okay. You know, shepherds are awesome. Just love them when they're around. And then finally, we have uh, teachers. Teachers explain. And they, they explain the nature of of truth and love and of God. And so we have these five areas, these five um, ministry realms, I think, as I will I'll call them. And my guess is, is as you listen to these explanations, there's one or two of these that probably just kind of pinged your radar a little bit. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I like that. And for whatever reason, there's just something about it that, that you really you really liked, and it sparked you just a little bit. And, and all are, of these are important, but you have to understand, no one person has all five of those roles. If they do, they're trying to sell you something, by the way. I'm just, <laughs> just saying, okay? No one person has all five. 
But every person has at least one that they're interested in. They have something that resonates with them about this. And I think this is, is, a, is an important thing for us to remember because as priests, we are going to resonate in one of these directions. Why? Because a priesthood of all believers distributes mercy and grace through one of these five areas. Does that make sense? There's a reason why it pings you. It's a reason why it sparks your interest is because as a priest, you are going to, you're um, very likely going to resonate with that as a way of distributing grace and mercy. But we have to be careful. Uh, recently, there's been uh, quite a bit of scholarship around this is saying that every church needs to have these five things in order to be a church. Well, um, I think that's a great idea. The problem is, is we don't see that scheme anywhere else in the text, just FYI. Uh, I'm not saying that um, it's not good to have those things because I, I think, let me put it this way, I think this is, is descriptive, not prescriptive. Does that make sense? It's not that Paul is saying, okay, if you're going to be a church, you need to make sure that you find an apostle and a prophet and an evangelist. And a... Most likely what's going to happen is you gather a group of people, you're going to find those folks there. See the difference? It's not prescriptive, it's descriptive about how God orders things, how God puts stuff together. And I think that God puts all these people in our church. Because as I talk to you, I can tell. Some of you are wired in, 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 in certain ways. And so the point of all of this, the, the work, the function of each of these five areas is the same. Okay? Now listen very carefully because this is important. The function of all five of these is the same. And we find it in verse 12. Here it is. So Christ gave, him, uh, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to, what's the word? Equip. Equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. And oh, by the way, that word built up is actually an architectural term. It means actually to build, like brick on brick kind of a thing. It's to actually build. The point to all of this is to equip for works of service, to extend the gospel, to call people back to God, to tell others the good news, to care about people, and to explain the nature, truth, and love of God. Works of service. The point is the same. So that the body might be built up. So think about this a little bit. Um, these five areas are for the church. It's for the people inside the church. Now, if you're going to be an evangelist, you've got to be telling other people, right? And you're distributing grace and mercy. But the point is that we're building the church up. Well, if it's an architectural term, then you have to be drawing outside resources to build the church up. Are you with me? Does that make sense? That's why when we talk about this idea that Jesus said, go and make disciples in Matthew 28, it, it is a numbers game. You have to actually go out and get disciples. If the church is not making disciples, it's not the church. I don't know what it is, but it's not a church. Maybe it's just a really cool club. Maybe it's not that cool because at least, you know, other clubs serve alcohol. We don't do that. <laughs> I'm just being real, okay? I'm just 
being real. Did he just say alcohol at church? It's okay. Now, what I find very interesting is very often um, the, the scholarship stops right here. So we get apostles and prophets, evangelists and pastors or shepherds and teachers to equip his people for the works of service so the body of Christ may, may be built up. Great, go forth and do. God's blessing on you to go and do that. They, they stop right there. The problem is, is that Paul's not done. And we need to keep reading a little bit more. So verse uh, 13 comes up. Until we all reach, what's the word? Unity. Oh, wait a minute. We came across that in verse 3. In the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become, what's that word? Mature. Attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So I'm, a, I'm supposed to equip for works of service so that we get unity and maturity. Are you tracking on that one? So equipping people to do works of service to get unity and maturity. <clears throat> Building of the body through service to achieve unity and maturity. And I'm going to make an argument right here. I think the entire passage rests on this verse. Now, some people might say it's the quipping part. I disagree. I think this is the point. I think this is what Paul is driving at. This is what we're after. Here's the interesting thing, though. Do you notice that there's something that Paul doesn't mention? Heaven. The point to following Christ as he apportioned it is not to get us into heaven, but rather to bring heaven down to earth. Beautiful. Because if you're going to talk about heaven, this is a great place to do it. But he doesn't. He says, no, unity and maturity. Not getting more people into heaven, but that we would have unity and we would have maturity so that we would attain the fullness of Christ. Are you with me? That is a really big omission, at least in my mind. So we know that Paul is after something else entirely, I think. This, this unity, this maturity are the things that, we, that we're after. And by the way, I'm not sure that you can actually achieve unity without maturity. And frankly, I'm not sure you can actually achieve maturity without some unity. I think they support one another. Just an aside, that's a freebie. Going on to verse 14. Let me pick this up. Verse 14. I get talking and I lose my place in the text. Um, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Tell me how you really feel, Paul. Instead, speaking the truth and love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So it appears to me that the hallmark of this unity and maturity, specifically maturity, is love. Because we see this over and over again in the next few verses. Even when the other person is hurtful, a mature person is still able to want the best for them. You see that? 
love. And as each part is doing their thing, as the apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers are each doing their thing, they are contributing to the whole and the whole is built up. So last week, one of the things I mentioned, um, uh, if you wanted to actually distribute some grace and, and mercy, I suggest please um, replace sarcasm with encouragement. And there was a collective groan from the crowd. But how are you going to build people up with sarcasm? How can you bring heaven to earth if you keep invoking hell? Now, sarcasm has its place. It's funny. But at some point, it becomes destructive. And so we need to encourage one another because Paul wants us to build up. I'm not sure the point of sarcasm is love. <gasps> did he say that out loud? Yep, I sure did. Think about that. And I will hear from the staff tomorrow night at staff meeting. I can't believe you did that. Now, before we close, I want to talk about a very infamous phrase before we leave this verse. Um, it's in verse 15. Can you bring that up for me? Yeah. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him. Speaking the truth in love. How many of you have heard this before? <laughs> All of a sudden, everybody's like, whoa, yeah. Here's the thing about that particular verse that I find very interesting. Just an observation. <laughs> Every time somebody invokes this phrase... It's usually combined with something to the effect of, you gotta love them enough to tell them they're sinning. Or they're wrong. Oh, come on now. I'm not the only one who's observed that, right? Usually speaking, when we're speaking the truth in love, we want to talk about the hard truth. Because brother or sister, you, you, know, you know you're not supposed to be doing that, right? Lisa and, and I, um, Eliana was just a baby, and Elizabeth was um, still pretty young. We visited a church that was uh, in the Wesleyan Arminian tradition, theological tradition. Uh, this is another part of the country. And um, um, they had a guest speaker there. Some of you heard me tell this story. There was a guest speaker there, and I, I don't remember a thing that the guy said, um, but I do remember that the, the pastor came up afterwards and he gave a prayer. And we all got our heads bowed and our eyes closed. And he says, and Lord, I, I don't remember the exact words, but something to the effect of, Lord, the hard truth is there are people who are not here who are going to hell. And I'm like this, and I look over at Lisa, and she's already looked at me like this. <laughs> Needless to say, we didn't go back there. Because I'm not necessarily sure <laughs> that that's going to be the emphasis that I, I want to focus on. Now, is it true? Well, maybe. Yeah, okay. I'm, I'm willing to say that, but I'm not sure it's helpful to, you know, bludgeon people over the head with that idea. Usually speaking, when we talk about speaking the truth in love, we are talking about um, telling them what's right, or telling them that they're sinning, or God forbid, we're telling them that they're going to hell, and 
Here's my question. You know me, I like questions. Here's my question. Why is the truth always bad or hard or difficult? Why? Why does it have to be that way? Why can't the truth also be positive and uplifting and encouraging? Is that not truth too? How about something like, I know this is hard for you, but I want you to know you're not alone. That's truth too. Right? How about something like, I'm here to help. That's truth. I don't agree with what you're deciding to do, but I want you to know I'm going to love you anyway. How is that not truth? We're so excited about trying to get them to believe a certain way and to act a certain way, and yet, really, it's about us and the truth that we have. It is God's business what happens in their life. It is your business what happens in your life. If you're going to share some truth, and yes, you may have to share some hard truth. I get that. But could we at least start with something positive, something uplifting? Because God knows the world needs this. Got a lot of head shaking going on here. Got quiet in here too. That's interesting. That's truth in love just as much as you shouldn't be doing this and the wagging of the fingers. I have a group of friends, very close friends, and uh, <clears throat> several years ago, uh, uh, we get together periodically, and one of the friends, um, dear, dear friend, he indicated in, in our time together that he had an issue that he was wrestling with. I won't tell you what the issue is, um, but it was, it was pretty significant, and you could tell it was just eating at him. And he wouldn't, he wouldn't say what it was, and you could tell he was a little nervous about it. He was afraid that, uh, well, I'm not sure what he was afraid of, but my guess is that um, what he was feeling was a certain amount of shame, and he was afraid that we were going to be judgmental. And he just, it was just eating, just eating him up inside. And this entire, we were only together a couple of hours. And some of the other friends just said, hey, man, you know, and tell us what's going on. You don't look so good, <laughs> kind of a thing. And, and finally, I just said, man, I, I'm just going to tell you right now, I don't know what the issue is. I don't have to know. You don't have to tell me. But whether you like it or not, I'm jumping in the foxhole with you. Because you shouldn't have to do this alone. I don't care what it is. If it's bothering you that much, it bothers me. And other guys kind of chimed in, and this brother unloaded some junk that he had been carrying for decades. And just, you could just see his body language change, his countenance changed. And we said, you know what? It doesn't matter, we love you anyway. Well, let me, let me tell you what happened. Let me tell you what the result of that was. That group of friends, we are unified. I got your six. You got mine. 
There's a level of trust now because of that. And hearing what this person was dealing with helped me to grow too. Because somebody else said, oh yeah, I know somebody who dealt with that same thing and here's what they did. Oh, oh really? And all of a sudden now, I'm a better person because of it. And what that created for us was an environment where we could continue to speak truth in love. And yeah, sometimes hard truth. Confrontational, saying, man, are you sure that's really the direction you want to go? Man, I love you, and you can do what you want to do, but I just got to tell you, as your brother, as your friend, I'm, I'm not sure that that would be the direction that I would take. But it created that environment for us to do that, and I think it's important for us to think about that not only do we get unity and we get growth, but we can also tell more truth in love. And what I find so fascinating about that when I think about that set of events and when I think about all of this truth and love and thinking about a positive form of truth, a loving form of truth, you know what it sounds like to me? Distributing grace and mercy as a priest is supposed to.